The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the latest episode of Strange New Worlds called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hey, Father Corey. How's it going? And Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around to the end of the show. We have more of your great listener feedback. Uh, and also, I want to encourage you to get your very own Secrets of Star Trek t-shirt or other StarQuest merchandise by visiting sqpn.com slash merch. And I want to tell you another uh, about another show on the StarQuest network you're sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Stargate. You can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Stargate. So, Jimmy, can you give us a recap of this episode of Strange New Worlds? This week, La'an witnesses a man out of time suddenly appear on the Enterprise. He's been shot with a gun, a real slug thrower, not an energy gun. And he gives her a device and tells her there's been an attack in the past and that she needs to get to the bridge. She does so and finds that she's in an alternate timeline where James Kirk is commanding the Enterprise. There is no Starfleet and both Earth and the Vulcans are losing a war to the Romulans. When she shows the device to Kirk, they struggle and are transported to mid-21st century Toronto. While they are there, a bridge is blown up, something they both knew happened in their own timelines. The bridge was blown up by a photonic grenade from the future. Trying to track the people responsible, they meet Sarah, a woman who has a crazy theory that aliens have been doing covert attacks on humanity to set them back and keep them from going to the stars. Kirk remembers that in his timeline, there was a second attack on a cold fusion reactor that destroyed all of Toronto. So they go in search of the cold fusion reactor. To get help, they visit Chief Engineer Pelia in this time frame. But she isn't an engineer yet. However, they do work out a way that they can find the reactor anyway. La'an is also starting to fall in love with Kirk, an experience her cold nature has never allowed her to have before and they kiss. Kirk is also thinking that La'an's timeline is better than his, and she says that the device she was given protects its users from changes in the timeline, so Kirk could come and live in her timeline if they restore it. They find the reactor, and it's in something called the Noonien Singh Institute. La'an's DNA lets them have access to the facility, but Sarah shows up and reveals herself to be a Romulan agent trying to hold humanity back with the attacks, and she shoots Kirk dead. Afterwards, with alarms going off, Sarah changes the, her plan. Instead of destroying the cold fusion reactor to destroy all of Toronto, she's going to go after her real target, Khan Noonien Singh, who is just a little boy in the facility. All this... <clears throat> oh, though this would free 
uh, La'an from her blackened heritage. La'an fights with and kills Sarah before letting Khan know that he is now safe. Afterwards, she returns to her own timeline using the device and finds, or to her own time using the device and finds her timeline restored. She's also visited by a time agent from the future who tells her that she can never reveal the experience to anyone, so she can't discuss it with anyone to process her feelings. At the end of the episode, La'an places a call to Lieutenant Kirk in the main timeline, but of course he doesn't know her. And afterwards, La'an cries over the fact that she's lost the love of the only man she's ever cared for. The end. Very good. Overall impressions, Father Corey. I enjoyed this. This is this was probably one of the better time travel Star Trek movies. Star, Star Trek and time travel has been kind of, you know, hit or miss. Sometimes they're great episodes. Sometimes they're hmm, episodes. Uh, but this this one I enjoyed. This was, you know, they, they did a good job of showing the two different timelines um, of talking about, you know, the issues surrounding time travel and, and, and all that. Um, it is interesting, though. Star Trek has had its the time wars have affected the timeline all of time. Uh, moment with this where they they basically explain that uh the reason why the the uh eugenics wars didn't happen in the 90s as tos stated is because now with the cold temporal wars have affected all of that and so hot now it's moving wars <laughs> yeah, hot temporal, yeah. Yeah. both both cold and hot yeah. have moved that timeline up so that's that's why they can go to 21st century toronto that's not affected by the eugenics wars um Kind of, kind of a little retconning uh, the Star Trek timeline, but that actually probably to its benefit. No, I, I really enjoyed this. Uh, there's one scene in particular I know Jimmy uh, passed over, which was the car chase, because I know Jimmy's repeated <laughs> dislike of it. But I liked it because as a fan of the Mopar vehicles, the Chrysler Dodge and Plymouth vehicles, to see Kirk and Lon chasing around in a uh, bright red Challenger Hellcat was a lot of fun. That's a nice car. <laughs> it was a very nice car. If anybody wants, if anyone wants to donate one to my parish, I will gratefully take it. <laughs> this car chase was more entertaining than most car chases. I remember True. endless car chases in the 1970, in 1970s television. And oh, yeah. Car chases, you know that until this car chase ends, nothing is going to happen to advance the plot. And so that's why it doesn't feature in my plot summary, because nothing happens to advance the plot in the car (laughs) chase. But it is it is more fun in this case, in part because Kirk is not an expert driver. You know, he's this is his first time behind the wheel of a ground vehicle, so far as we know, and he's figuring it out as he goes. And that makes it more entertaining. Yeah. Um, so I did enjoy this car chase, but yeah, it didn't do anything to advance the plot. <laughs> and Jimmy, your overall impression of the episode? I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Um, the in fact, my first note is all caps fun exclamation point. Um, I liked it a lot. Uh, I liked various things in it. Like Father Corey mentioned, they discuss time travel and they do it in a nice way because so La'an and alternate Kirk end up in this past that is common to both of their timelines. They both remember the bridge blowing up in Toronto, but Kirk remembers this extra thing. And at first, Kirk is not on board. He didn't come here voluntarily. Um, in, in fact, both of them got here just because they were struggling over the device. He wanted to study it and La'an didn't think they would give it back. And so she presses the button and they end up here. And he's like, uh, why should I prefer your timeline over mine? 
you know, we can't mm-hmm. save them both. So um, I sh- as far as I'm concerned, I should do nothing. And he um, or she tries to make this case of my timeline is not about to lose a war with the Romulans. <laughs> and and we have this multiracial, multiplanetary federation and um, and so forth. So, you know, it's it's kind of it. it she's got a point. But so does Kirk. You know, mm-hmm. if someone showed up to me and said, hey, let's wipe out your future. If someone took me back to 1960, let's say, before my birth and said, I've got this alternate timeline that would be really great and better than the one you experienced. It's like. I'd feel a little conflicted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so so I liked that. I liked that Pelia. I, I didn't think it was entirely credible that in thousands of years of life, Pelia has not learned any engineering, but I liked conceptually that she's not an engineer yet. In fact, they imply, I think it's implied that this is a bootstrap paradox where they inspire her to become an engineer. Right. Um, I also liked the opening sequence where we get to see La'an doing routine security matters on a starship, you know, she's having to explain to someone that the, the transporter buffer does not steal your personal items. Uh, she's having to c- deliver a noise complaint to Spock, who's been practicing too loud on his Vulcan harp. And Although, wants to know who complained. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Although, well, I mean, he could deduce it. It's going to be pe- person, someone on one side of him or another. Yeah. yeah. Um, I actually once back when I was living in a second floor apartment over a guy who had, he was an older guy that had, I believe they were adopted kids. And someone put in a noise complaint on him and he thought it was me, but it wasn't. <laughs> I don't I don't know who it was, but it wasn't me. Um, so we oh, also Pelia is a pack rat thief mm-hmm. and she's yeah. got all these art treasures from like the Louvre and stuff. And she, oh, that's a duplicate. And, and yep. no, it's the real thing. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of fun in this episode. So I. Before I get to my overall impression, since you brought it up, I really want to point out that artifact, the painting mm-hmm. is a Vermeer. Mm-hmm. It's not from the Louvre. It's actually mm-hmm. one of the paintings stolen from the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum here in Boston in oh, 1990. Oh, um, oh, which wow. I, uh, I know, happen to know a lot about because I've been, I, I, I was a newspaper delivery boy at the time it happened and I read all the papers at the time. And, um, and how do I put this? I have a sneaking suspicion that my late father had an idea of who did it. Hmm. Uh oh. <laughs> Never could get him to tell me. And now that he's passed, the uh, that $5 million reward is gone. But uh, hmm. apparently, Apelia ended up with it. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess we know what she was up to. Yeah. But yeah. it's oh. funny that it was the Louvre and not, they didn't like make it where it was actually from, the Garden Museum. Maybe it's because mm-hmm. everyone recognizes Louvre in one word yeah. without having mm-hmm. to explain. Also, I like the fact that they played on Kirk's chess knowledge. So when they get yep. back to the to 21st century Toronto, they don't have any money. And Laon is like, oh, and everything is ex- in exchange for currency, food, clothing, shelter, you know, that we've all got to pay for it all. And Kirk's like, OK, let's get some money. And to do that, you know, they're thinking how they can do it. And he sees people playing chess in the park. And he's like, I got this. Give me a minute. And and they call back to the second Star Trek pilot where no man has gone before, mm-hmm. where Kirk is playing three dimensional chess with Spock. 
And Spock says, that's a very annoying move, Captain. But we know <laughs> from the way he says it that 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 Kirk has just won and mm-hmm. or at least severely hampered Spock. And given how smart Spock is, Kirk really must be very good at chess. And he explains that this two-dimensional version is basically like idiot's chess. So he cleans the floor with other chess players and wins bets with them. I love the fact that every time they go back in time, City on the Edge of Forever, Voyage Home, and this, it's Kirk who figures out the way to get money that they're going to need. Forget mm-hmm. exactly what he what he does in in City on the Edge of Forever, but I remember they, he was they the go one. to work at uh, Edith Keeler's house, right? And then, of course, in Voyage Home, he sells his antique glasses that that mm-hmm. McCoy yep. gave him. And here, it's the, the so it's always Kirk who figures out how to get the money, which I, I think is amusing. There's also another city on the edge of forever like moment where they they're trying to figure out how can we find this cold fusion reactor and um, and Kirk turns to Laon and says, because they didn't bring a tricorder and 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 Kirk is needling Laon for just pushing the button without making any preparations. And he says, I don't suppose you're you're an engineer, are you? You can't build one for us. And she's like, no, but that's what happened in City on the Edge of Forever. Spock's tricorder was damaged and he had to use early 20th, 20th century components to build a new tricorder interface with bearskins and flint knives. <laughs> yes, yeah. stone, stone knives and bearskins. Yeah, that, that's a, a line I always remembered. So I, I had a, just a few you know, impressions I wanted to start with first, uh, as I actually want to quote one of our listeners on Discord who said it was Picard season two in one hour. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> yes, this is what they should have done in Picard season two is and done it better. in an hour. <laughs> also, this is the best use of Jim Kirk they've made on the series. This was mm-hmm. much more fun than anything they've done with him before. Yes, that's right. Um, I also want to mention the title. It's a Shakespearean reference that they apparently either do Latin phrases or Shakespearean references. This is from Macbeth. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools. Um, This is the one that life's but a shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. Mm -hmm. That's from the same passage. But all Mm -hmm. our yesterdays is also a Star Trek episode title from TOS. Also about mm-hmm. time travel. So kind yeah. of funny uh, that it's that there. Oh, I forgot to mention one thing that gets Kirk's attention uh, about Laon's timeline maybe being better. She, she says to Kirk, I've, I've never met you personally, but I've heard about you. I know a lot about you from your brother. Mm-hmm. And Kirk says, Sam's alive. Right. Yep. And that tells us Sam is dead in his timeline. And that's kind of the first inkling he gets of maybe I should go along if it means Sam's going to live. Mm-hmm. That and he's never seen a sunset because he's never stepped foot on Earth because it's not habitable anymore. Right. Which yeah. Is, yeah. Instead know, of being born in Iowa, he was born on the USS Iowa. Yes. Right. Uh, by the way, a little behind the scenes explanation for why Captain Pike has been so absent from the first three episodes. I mean, he was in the second one more. But uh, the first episode in this episode, mostly not there, Anson Mount, the actor who plays Pike, his wife had a baby and he asked for uh, some paternity leave. Oh, cool. I I have to be okay with that. I I think that's fine. It's nice of him to put priority in his family. Um, So, yeah, I I really enjoyed that first, you know, that little bit of prelude where Laan is showing how much of a slog being head of security in a starship can be and kind of a pain dealing with it um the the uh, i like that pelia mentions 
she kept all of these artifacts that she's brought aboard in a bunker in Vermont, which becomes important to the plot later mm-hmm. in case the socialist utopia of the Federation falls apart. And you can see yeah. she kind of disdains it a little bit, which I thought mm-hmm. was kind of fun. I like that. <laughs> well, and she says it was from the archaeology department, which, of course, everybody immediately think, oh, a university's archaeology department. In other words, Indiana Jones type of right. thing. It's like, no, that's the name of her store. Yeah. Her right. antique store. Yeah. If you've ever been but, to but Vermont. She's, she's yeah. using it to mislead people. I mean, she's yeah. telling Lon, I used to be with the archaeology department. <laughs> and there's no way Lon is going to think that, oh, that was her that was her antique store. Yeah. <laughs> if you ever go to Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, so upper New England, the per capita number of antique stores is ridiculous. <laughs> it yeah. is like the a space time continuum sucks all antiques into those three states. It's kind of funny. <laughs> so it's it is appropriate that she would have an antique store in Vermont. That I like that. Um, we have a nice scene of her uh, sparring, like uh, boxing with Mbenga uh, in the in the ship's gym. That's kind of interesting. And he he says she's bearing something all by herself, but they don't tell us what, but presumably the, the weight of her genetic heritage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's what we eventually get to understand. Um, and then we have, that's when we get this scene of the uh, temporal invest department of temporal investigations agent showing up. This is a concept we got first in DS nine, the department yes. of temporal investigations uh, with Bashir. Uh, and then we saw them again. Do we see them in Enterprise or is it just a different kind of time traveler? I think it's that we also see them in Voyager. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's I think it's the same organization. It's certainly one very similar if it's not exactly the same organization. Right. OK. And so at first I thought he just showed up kind of randomly for some reason on this ship. But he was coming for her yeah, because correct. she's the she's the one who can solve the problem. Right. Uh, she's got she's the, a Noonien Singh. She's got the DNA that will let them into the facility. Her the hand scanner apparently reads DNA and she's got Noonien Singh DNA in her so she can get mm-hmm. in. He also gives her this incredible double entendre of get to the bridge. Yeah. And, right. Which both alerts her to the fact she's in a new timeline where Khan Noonien Singh didn't happen because Toronto blew up and killed him yep. as a boy. Um and then when they get to the past and the Toronto friendship bridge or whatever it is blows up, they realize there's a second meaning and they need to get to the bridge to figure out what, where the attacks are coming from. Mm-hmm. And that leads them to discover about the photonic uh, or the photonic grenade, which blew it up, which means they're aliens that starts the car chase and Kirk steals this hot car mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. neck pinching its owner. Yep. And, um, and and Lon says, where did you learn to do that? And he says, I was in a Denobulan prison and my cellmate was a Vulcan. I can also make plomeek soup in the in the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah, that was a kind of interesting detail. Let's talk about Kirk in jokes, because mm-hmm. this Kirk in the alternate timeline is captain of a United Earth fleet ship, which is fun because that's how they used to refer to well, the Enterprise. Th- in the original it, series it, for a season. Not exactly. They referred to it as the as a ship of the United Earth Space Probe Agency or USPA. 
and they don't use the term USPA or its full version here. I wish they had. That would have been even nicer. I thought at one point he said there is a like where he kind of says the United Earth fleet in passing in the first season, mm-hmm. but uh, maybe just a, a false memory. Um, but well, didn't they kind of refer to uh, the series Enterprise, the NX-01 Enterprise? Mm-hmm. I mean, they did call it USS Enterprise, but didn't they like United Earth fleet? spaceship enterprise something like that might have been yeah 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 i think it's possible i'll have to look it up and i didn't do that before but let's talk about this kirk um he's fun is he very Mm -hmm. kirk like some people see you know wonder is it how you know is he like chris pine's kirk is he like shatner's kirk of course is what we think and it's interesting um paul wesley the actor was interviewed in esquire magazine about this role and i just want to give you guys a couple of things he says um he says, Kirk is the guy you trust. Well, the article says Kirk is the guy you trust because he believes in people when no one else will. And he'll always do the right thing, even if nobody notices or remembers, which is a, mm-hmm. a little bit of a, a summary. But Paul Wesley says he bases his Kirk on the time from the second pilot that you just mentioned mm-hmm. when Kirk was described as a stack of books with legs when he was at the Academy. So mm-hmm. he may be a hero, but he's smart and down to earth. And at this point in his life, he's, he's just a lieutenant still. He's a little less self-assured, still finding his footing, still trying to figure out what kind of leader he wants to be. He's fun, jovial, have the having a good time guy who at the end of the day will do the right thing. That's the main timeline, Kirk. The mm-hmm. alternate timeline, Kirk, already is a captain and right. I think is more like the Bill Shatner Kirk of being a little bit larger than life and fun loving and so forth. He he reminds me of Kirk in search for whales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But young, but uh, at but first younger. I was like, yeah, yeah. Paul Wesley doesn't feel a lot like Shatner, but the Kirk of TOS is a captain by that point. He's changed. Mm-hmm. He's become the leader. He's got the, 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 the weight of command on him as a Lieutenant Kirk. He's a different guy. He doesn't have that. He's still the same personality. So I've kind of grown to like this Kirk. And uh, this episode really, really cements that for me. One thing I like is Kirk is I I think if you if you kind of take the the, the popular um, understanding of Kirk, especially from TOS, is he's action hero. You know, you you think Mm -hmm. of the, you know, the, the, the fight scenes and things like that with the over the top fighting moves. And that's exactly, and that's what people think of for Kirk, and they don't think of that he is at least written to be intelligent and a strategist, and mm-hmm. you know, and, and you know, very intelligent. Uh, but he, he, he's kind of pulling that out here, you know. If you know the fact that he has this scene with the with the chess, where he he's, wins all their money basically right. uh, playing chess because he is a strategist and he has the intelligence and the knowledge of chess to be able to do it well. Yeah, I agree. And that's the thing is we, I think a lot of our, you know, the, what we remember for, for many of us, the original series, you know, Spock being completely unemotional. Well, he wasn't completely unemotional in the original series and Kirk being just an action hero, but no, Kirk actually was pretty smart at times. In fact, smarter than Spock at certain times, uh, solving the, the crises. And so, yeah, the, I, I I think some of that is is, we, is having to remember, you know, what actually uh, what actually the the original series was like, which is nice that we're doing these reviews. So um, on the car chase, I do want to mention the resolution of it, 
which kind of mm-hmm. threw me out of it because it was so unrealistic unless canadian police mm-hmm. are so very different yeah. from american police actually before we get to that we also learn in the car chase his grand his middle name tiberius is after his grandfather yeah yeah because laon comments on him having a ridiculous middle name and he <laughs> says hey tiberius was my grandfather's name right. I, I thought that had been established before and maybe that's like he was the jj verse or something like that I, I, it was the uh the jj trek where with the scene where where he's being born as as the uh, the ships being destroyed, the Kelvins being destroyed, mm-hmm. and, and, and they talk about talk about having <laughs> Tiberius, where it's his, it's George's father. Yeah, his name is so that that at least it had been established on in the Kelvin timeline. Okay, right, right. Well, that largely doesn't count, but I did notice that <laughs> yeah, I agree that, but yeah. they, <laughs> that they had um, him being born on a spaceship, just like in. The JJ verse. Yep. Mm-hmm. One of the things the retcon means, though, is we're no longer in the same timeline as uh, the original series. Right. If Con wasn't in the 90s, if that's been changed by time conflict, we've been tracking an alternate timeline this whole time. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, first contact, like which we talked about recently, happened around the same time that this episode happened in the 21st century, right? Mid 20th century. No, they don't establish a year for this. And I got the impression it was late 21st century. I I think this is supposed to be 2063. I thought current for uh, first contact is 2063 because that's that's when the first contact happened. But this is supposed to be current day. 2022. If you're just just going by all the vehicles, all the vehicles are current day oh, or older yeah. vehicles. Yeah. So this is this is modern day. This is this is 2023. I w- oh that's true. She because um, uh, Sarah says this should have happened 30 years ago in 1992. That would put this yeah. around 2022. Oh, 2022, right, right. So that's this true. yeah this is this is current day. This is modern day. Okay. Um. Interesting. Interesting. So. Um, yeah, the thing with the car chase is he gets the the cops let him go because some random bystander claims that he's a famous that Kirk is a famous civil rights lawyer and that therefore makes it allowable for him to drive like a maniac on the streets of Toronto or something. Well, so when they get out of the car, Sarah is standing there filming them with a with a cell phone and she's mm-hmm. she's apparently live stream streaming them onto the internet. And she falsely says that Kirk, who is a, who she doesn't genuinely doesn't recognize at mm-hmm. this point, but she falsely says that he's a famous civil rights attorney. And she spins this whole story about how he could make things go bad for the cops if they right. mistreat him. And they end up deciding to let him off with a warning, which is not super realistic. But I loved having the cops threatened by a streamer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, because I've seen actual videos of cops radically changing their behavior when they realize they're being streamed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and so afterwards, um, Sarah explains to them her theory that that the Earth is being set back by alien attacks. And she names Chernobyl, Tunguska and JFK mm-hmm. as previous attacks. To set humanity back. And so several, if if she's not lying about that part, several of those events were all caused by aliens. Um, or it was all part of her cover to, to make them well, think she's I, a crazy conspiracy That's, well, that's yeah. why yeah. I said if she's not yeah. lying about that. Yeah. Um, but uh, she... She talks about this alien threat and she says, anyway, it was super fun saving you from an illegal black torture dungeon. 
<laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's it's an interesting deep cover that uh, Sarah is is using there to, of the kind of the, the uh, conspiracy theorist. I do like she's on her iPad. She's showing them, you know, evidence, quote unquote, and, photos and photo evidence and has a mm-hmm. photo of a TOS era Romulan warbird, uh, you know, in the sky of, you know, on, on Earth. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of fun. Yeah, which that got keep, everybody's attention. Yeah. Yeah. Because they both recognize it, Kirk and Lon. And, and the uh, audience. Yes. Mm-hmm. And presumably, you know, knowing what we know now, that was probably Sarah's <laughs> Romulan mm-hmm. Warbird. Uh, so interesting. So he knows that there's an experimental cold fusion reactor in Toronto. Kirk does. That the Romulans destroyed. That's he remembers from his history. And that they determine as the point of divergence. And so that's, that's where now has become our MacGuffin. We've got to find this thing. Originally, um, all of Toronto was blown up in order to kill Khan. But mm-hmm. now that her plan to blow up the reactor is in danger, um, she says, why use a grenade when you can use a scalpel? And she just wants to go directly for Khan. Right. right. So uh, Laon, knowing that they need a tricorder and she's not an engineer, Knows that he knows of a Starfleet engineer who's not that far away. Toronto is not far from Vermont. Uh, and remembering Pelly, Pelly is in Vermont at this point. Um, so they go find her in Vermont. And then my first thing is, is, how do they know she's here? How do they cross the border? They actually give us explanations, you know, so mm-hmm. that's good, whether it's believable or not. But Kirk used yeah. DuckDuckGo on a Mac at the Apple store, which I thought was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> they name check DuckDuckGo, which is fantastic. I, 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 they also said they like bribed a border guard and I'm like, do you need to do that to cross between the U S and Canada? I thought you just drove across. No, you need to you need passports these days. No, oh, these days. Okay. Cause it used to be the longest unguarded border in the world. You could you know, find a spot to walk across. I'm sure mm-hmm. <laughs> there, 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 there are ways you could get across whether or not you'll get very far without getting visited by border patrol of either side is another story. Right. Mm. Right. Well, I'm more down at the Southern border than at the Northern border this moment. <laughs> yeah. So uh, then I, I, I enjoyed the scene with Pelia in her, in her shop and um, you'll find like, who she is. I like that they play on. So the, they have a cold fusion reactor that's secret. And in the real world, cold fusion was a big deal in the early nineties. Um, because there were some uh, scientists from the from Utah who announced they had de- they had built cold fusion. So what cold fusion is is it's nuclear fusion happening close to room temperature, and there have been various. So you don't need super high temperature to do it. Um, and if we had cold fusion, it would be a magical technology that we could generate loads of power for very little investment. Um, which is true of fusion in general, but cold fusion would be like easy fusion where you mm. don't need a super big machine to do it. And you could just do it on a tabletop, which is, in fact, how the Utah scientists claimed they did it. Mounted on and, the back of your DeLorean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and this was a big blow up in the news. And then really quickly, scientists, other scientists started piling on and saying their results didn't couldn't be replicated. And it got them a it it horrendously damaged their careers. And it had been the university that had kind of pushed them into making this public announcement. And then it destroyed their careers, basically. Um, But what people don't realize is in the investigation that was done afterwards, they found some of the replications didn't work and didn't show more power coming out of the system than was going into it. 
but others did. And mm-hmm. there was a recommendation that got ignored in the press with all the scorn that was being heaped on cold fusion. Um, there was a recommendation to continue research. And actually, mm-hmm. there has been ongoing cold fusion research that because of the mocking is not publicly talked about very much, but like the Navy has a cold fusion research project. And so it's conceivable that one day they could get cold fusion to work. And but I like Pelia not being an engineer at this point is like, I didn't think cold fusion is real. I thought it was like lasers. And they're like, "Um, lasers are real. I can't keep up on every development. (laughs) That was good. And I liked that the uh, solution was the tritium on old watches, uh, glow in the dark watch faces uh, that would the the. what was it the gamma? Um, not, is it gamma so radiation? It, so, so tritium is a is hydrogen with a couple extra neutrons, mm-hmm. and it is radioactive. It wants to spit out those neutrons, and so it emits neutron radiation, um, which is different than gamma radiation. Gamma radiation is high energy um, photons if I recall correctly, maybe is it electrons? It's either electrons or photons, but so tritium wants to emit, uh, wants to decay and it will light up stuff like phosphorus. And so, um, Pelia doesn't know much about all this, but she knows that divers watches from the eighties would have, uh, tritium gas inside of them and that would cause the phosphorescent dials to light up so you could read the watch that's what it is and but the tritium is all decayed after 20 years so the watch stops working and what they decide to do it's kind of a group deduction they decide they can remove the glass on the watch so that the phosphorescent face will be exposed to the atmosphere and if there's tritium floating around in the atmosphere, the watch will light up and that will tell them that they're close to the reactor because tritium is one of the byproducts of the reactor, Mm. they say. Yeah. And um, so that doesn't sound great to me. You're going to have to drive all over Toronto (laughs) and hope, hope there's enough tritium in the atmosphere to make this thing visibly glow. Yeah, you want a lot more phosphorus and material than than just a little bit on the watch. But yeah, it's 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 what we get. But of to course, work. it happens. It happens to be right down downtown Toronto, and they can yeah. just walk right past it. And oh, hey, it's glowing. It it is interesting that they chose to do this in Toronto, not in like New York, which is where City on the Edge of Forever was, or mm-hmm. you know, Los Angeles, an American city. They use that's the city no. they actually film in, which is funny. Yeah, I was gonna say, and and of course they they are filming in Toronto now, so it is just going yeah. down the street to the film basically. And Kirk actually calls that out. He's like, when they first get there, he's like, it's New York. No, no, this is Toronto. Don't you recognize the cities? He's like, I've never the been. Big to sign behind him that says Toronto Center. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so on, you know, while they're doing their walk down the street, you know, waving the watch around, hoping to catch some tritium, Lon admits she's not good with people, but she tells them that she wants to bring Kirk back to her timeline, which would be awkward <laughs> for the other Kirk. And um, and then he proves he is James T. Kirk because he kisses her because, you know, that's that's a Kirk thing to do. Yep. Um, so that's nice. And that's when they find the Noonien Singh Institute, um, which presumably has. Uh, many different underhanded things going on. Uh, remember, Noonien Singh was Brent Spiner's character from season 
to a Picard, mm-hmm. um, you know, so he was doing that genetic stuff. And so this Khan was one of the, one of the, in fact, did they even name check Khan in his he, files? I don't, I think they may have, but it was just briefly because he was, he was playing an ancestor. Uh, he was like, I forget his name, but it was, he was one of the Soongs, not one of the right. Noonian Sings. Right. Um, and so I'm not entirely sure. Also, season two of Picard was like 2024. That's approximately the same time. Oh, as, I'm getting that mixed as, up. Yeah. As yes. this episode. Um, but they, they are about to break in and Laan has just used her handprint to open the door to the Institute. And that's when Sarah shows up again and reveals she's a Romulan and has didn't lie to them earlier. Aliens, namely Romulans, are trying to <laughs> keep right. humanity from going to the stars. And she's all for that. Um, she says temporal wars have been fought over this. And she is about to shoot Kirk and then go into the Institute. And Kirk is like, if you shoot me, the alarms will go off. Guards will rush to the reactors. Your plan will fail. And she's like, you're bluffing. And he says, try me. And she shoots him (laughs) fatally. And he, as he's dying, he's like, I wasn't kidding. And the alarms start going off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when her plan fails. She knows she can't get to the reactor. So she decides to go straight for Boy Khan. Right. I, I was tempted to say, he's dead, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> or he's dead, Jim. Uh, there's this movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jim's dead. <laughs> Jim's dead. Uh, so, and that's where we can find out that Sarah has been trapped on earth for 30 years mm-hmm. you know, she's been living among humans and <laughs> presumably unhappy about it she seems quite unhappy uh presumably all this time trying to do things that the temporal department of temporal investigations is preventing her from doing i, mm-hmm. I think that's the idea she, well she says two things that are interesting the first thing she says is temporal wars have been fought over this meaning there are known opponents who are fighting mm-hmm. back. And that would include the temporal, the temporal investigations people. But then she also says it feels like time itself is pushing back, mm-hmm. suggesting maybe there's something deeper than the humanoid opponent she's dealing with. And she tries to convince Laan to go along with this plan to kill mm-hmm. Khan because Khan is, you know, he's, you know, another Hitler to use the, the, uh, the phrase and she says you know if you we, you can be free of khan and, and live whatever life you want and all that legacy and i'm like be, yeah. because she has the device that right. protects her from time from changes to the timeline right. otherwise if if they kill khan and she didn't have that device she would be vanished from history and i'm thinking like if if a person were confronted with this question, the 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 thing they have to think about is, yeah, but then where? What about my family? Like all the people I love mm-hmm. in my family would and be gone. My whole my whole timeline. I've already seen what happens if you win. We <laughs> yeah. end up with Kirk's sucky timeline. I don't want <laughs> yeah. that. Right, right. And but so they they play it out nicely because yeah. she tells her you can be free of him. Just let me in to use your handprint to let us into the room where Khan is and she starts to turn towards the hand print scanner and then suddenly attacks Sarah. Mm-hmm. And so it looks, it's, it's a fake out. It looks like she's going to give in to temptation, but then she doesn't. And, 
and this she's confronted with this question, which is an interesting question. What if you know if Hitler was your ancestor? Like this is a, a classic, mm-hmm. like sort of philosophical yeah. time travel question. If you could travel back in time and kill Adolf Hitler as a child, would you do it? And as as long as you have a device that protects you from the grandfather paradox, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and well, that's the thing is, is but you know, I yes, know, he's I responsible. For, well, because he's responsible for genocide, torture, a war that destroys so much of humanity, but yet also creates this future of the Federation. And frankly, otherwise, yeah. the Romulans will, are about to defeat Earth in this war in the alternate future. Yeah. Now, the advantage Lon has is she knows what the timeline looks like if he's not killed. Right. And, and what and what it looks like if he's killed. Yeah. In the classic, would you kill Hitler thing? Um, you don't know what the uh, what the alternate timeline would be. But as long as you're a betting man, I got a better assassination for you. <laughs> don't kill Hit- Hitler as a kid. Go back to 1914 and stop Archduke. Franz Ferdinand for being killed mm. because that triggered World War One and World War One led to may have played a contributing factor in the Russian. Well, it played a contributing factor in the Russian Revolution that gave us communism mm-hmm. and it also set up the Nazis to take over in the aftermath of World War One. And that led to World War Two. So you can potentially delete institutional communism from the world, including Russia and China, and stop the Nazis and World War II if you go to 1914 and and preserve Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Now, yeah, I mean, World War I might have started anyway, but... Um, oh, but there it, would have been a big war in the early yeah. 20th century, but it, it, it we arguably would not have... Now, we don't know the other shape of the timeline, yeah. unlike Laon, but if you're a betting man... Huh there's a wager here. You might get rid of communism and Nazism. Imagine the better world that would have happened. <laughs> so or would it be? Yeah. Well, well, it, would have, yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't have been a paradise, but it might not have had all the horrors that we had. The 20th including century. Including the Jewish Holocaust. And the Holodomir of the, the Ukrainians of the, mm-hmm. you know, when Stalin stopped them all. Um, and the Cultural Revolution in China. But yeah, interesting. Uh, so, we mentioned how she got uh, when Leon gets back, she's in her quarters. That's where the temporal investigations agent is there and tells her she's not allowed to talk to anyone about it. But it's interesting that Pelia doesn't remember does or doesn't say she remembers I, Leon. I think so. I, I think what they did is at the end when 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 Leon walks onto the bridge and and Pike is chewing out Pelia. Um, she has a look that I, that I almost, it almost looked to me like recognition. Mm-hmm. Like she looks, Pelia looks right at Laon and it's kind of like, I recognize you now. This is kind of a nice moment because as earlier in the episode, when, um, when Laon found all the stolen items, the art treasures that Pelia had, she referred the matter to Captain Pike. And so now we get the payoff of that scene. Captain Pike is having a meeting with number one and Pelia on the bridge. And Pelia is arguing that, um, oh, the statute of limitations passed long ago for anything that might have been stolen. And and uh, and and. Pike is like, but does that mean you get to keep it? <laughs> and, <laughs> and and he says, why don't we see what security has to say as Lon walks on the bridge? And she says, I think you should let this one slide, Captain. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I was, I was almost half expecting and hoping that Pelia would come in and, and there would be something like, I thought you looked familiar or, you know, something like that, where kind of like Pelia had made that connection before, but wasn't sure, you know, something like that. Yeah. But they yeah. really, and, and maybe that will come up. Yeah. Maybe that'll, you know, that might come up in a later episode too. Now, one of the things I was thinking about at the, as this episode ended and we had this scene where we, we, you know, this clarification or the confirmation of Alan's feelings for Kirk is she fell in love with James T. Kirk, who will eventually in this timeline, find her ancestor floating in space. And that ancestor mm-hmm. will later kill Kirk's son. Yeah. <laughs> this, there's this connection between the Nudian Sings and the Kirks <laughs> that just keeps coming up yeah. in this. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I don't know. Ironic circumstance kind of and they are they are going to try to uh develop that relationship in the the main timeline because mm-hmm. she gets a hold of kirk and sets up a coffee date whenever they're back at space dock together right right and yeah i mean do we presume we Maybe. have a new timeline so. here yeah yeah also um we have this visit from this agent from the department of temporal investigations and lon says like Am I supposed to know who that is? And she says, yeah. hey, you don't, haven't heard of us because we don't exist yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the, the, the last scene, the last shot of the, of the scene of the episode is it focuses, is, uh, focuses in on the diver's watch from the 1980s mm-hmm. or whatever it is um, on Laon's bed. Because she was wearing it when she pressed the mm-hmm. button to come back yeah. to her own time. So do you think there's any significance to that? I mean, is it kind of foreboding well, of anything? I th- I don't know that there's plot significance to it. I mean, they could because it's just a watch. It's not a piece of fancy technology. Yeah. Um, right. You know, that could be some science fiction MacGuffin. Um, my take on it was, I mean, they could use it that way, but it doesn't seem a natural fit. My thought was it's a, it's a physical reminder of her lost love. Right. Mm. Interesting. Exactly. Okay. okay. It reminds of that, that moment when they had their kiss, I guess. Yeah. Uh, any other last thoughts on this episode, Father Corey? Just one thing real quick. We just kind of glossed over the bridge because the bridge really was just the, the, the plot point to the show. Mm. But it's kind of an interesting idea. It, it was a bridge that was built across Lake Ontario mm-hmm. over 30 miles, which is 30 miles from Toronto, downtown Toronto to uh, northern New York, which at the closest point is 30 miles. That's be quite the bridge. It's supposed to be, you know, the largest bridge in the world and all this thing. Right. Maybe barely. The one over Lake Pontchartrain outside of New Orleans is like 26 miles or something, if I recall yeah. correctly. Something I can't remember. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think you're right on that, though. But this is this is little just over 30 miles between downtown Ontario and, and the northern point of northern New York. So it'd be interesting if they ever decide to do that. All Because right now. To get from Toronto, New York, you literally have to go around the tip of the lake. Right. Through which Niagara. is a much longer drive. So. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. And Buffalo. Yep. Um, all right. Jimmy, final thoughts? All right. So let's get to our feedback then. This was uh, feedback all on our last episode, which was uh, at Astra Per Aspera. And the first uh, feedback comes from Paul Solkowski via Facebook, who writes, Father Corey's point as the episode being a filler is well taken. The menagerie was a stall tactic so Roddenberry could have the budget of two episodes on a one-episode filming schedule. I enjoyed this Strange New Worlds episode level of script writing. However, while established, Una's genetic heritage didn't have very much screen time series-wise to build up tension. 
even on the question of how she was going to get out of it, I thought it was moderately interesting. Uh, the problem is courtroom dramas lose their weight as uh, bottle stories and episodic shows. This kind of story could work very well in a more structured series like Babylon 5 and possibly DS9. Mm -hmm. This The courtroom setting could give logical reason to a more exposition-heavy episode. This gives the series a chance to review and more openly discuss subtext and ramifications of previous episodes. The characters then having to deal with the implications of the ruling would give more weight going moving forward. Yeah, I, I agree. If if this were this. So Strange New Worlds is a largely picaresque series. Uh, picaresque is a literary term for episodic adventure where you may have an initial ad, ad, adventure that sets everything in motion and you have a final adventure that resolves everything. But the adventures between that are largely self-contained. And it goes back to a tradition of novel writing. You'll hear about picaresque novels where you have your hero set off on his quest in the first chapter. And then each chapter is like a completely different adventure before he gets his final quest at the end and defeats the big boss or whatever. Um, but that's how this series is structured. And so I agree. Courtroom dramas don't have as much impact as if you took more time to tell them and built up to them and then right. had to deal with serious consequences thereafter. Then our next feedback comes from Sandra Kraft via YouTube, says, In discussing the Federation, Starfleet, and Augmentation, someone brought up Spock and how much genetic enhancements, augmentation, and general high-tech monkeying around would have to be done for two alien species to reproduce. Given how many mixed-species people there are in Star Trek, is this an acknowledged exception to the no-augments rule or what? So they they play i have two thoughts on that they number one is in real life two alien species would never be able to breed um and at most you might graft a few genes on or something but you're not going to take half of a genome from one species and splice <laughs> it onto half of a genome from another species that's that dog won't hunt that mm. monster dog won't hunt <laughs> um and so they play they they started out by ignoring that on star trek in the original series they just say spock had a human mother and a vulcan father and leave it at that in um next gen they introduce Alexander or they introduce yeah, Alexander's mother, Kalar, yeah. who is half mm -hmm. human. And so she's our first half human Klingon. And she has a throwaway line about with sufficient help, it can work, meaning some kind of medical genetic help. Mm -hmm. um, and then apparently that's the explanation for Bolana Torres as well. And when we get to Enterprise, they they uh, have the not love child, the non love child of T'Pol and Trip, who they both have T's and P's in their names that are four letters long. Interesting. Um, but T'Pol and Trip have their DNA stolen and to produce a Vulcan baby girl with genetic engineering help. Um, and it doesn't work and the child dies. So they've kind of had played it both ways where you can just mate with another species and then also you need genetic help. Well, on the if you just mate theory or if you do just enough genetic engineering to achieve a mating, but you're not trying to augment the person's abilities, then you're then you I could see why Starfleet wouldn't consider them augments 
because they would have what's known as hybrid vigor. Hybrid vigor is uh, strength that an organism gains by having parents that are genetically dissimilar. It's kind of mm-hmm. like if if the parents are genetically too similar, the child's going to have inbreeding, you know, which is one of the reasons that in European royal families, hemophilia became so common, as well as weak chins. Um, and that's unhealthy to have inbreeding. But if you have hybrid vigor, you get benefits like Mm -hmm. um, because of the the genetic diversity, you're less likely to have two copies of the same gene. And that means that if a disease comes in that preys on that gene, you're going to have extra immunity to it because you've only got one gene instead of two copies. So you're less vulnerable. And hybrid vigor is a real thing that is Mm -hmm. seen in different species. Uh, where you have very dissimilar parents mating. And it probably is one of the evolutionary drivers behind exogamy in humans. Exogamy is where you marry outside your group. And that's one of the reasons that foreign women can seem exotic and sexy because <laughs> it's a it's a temptation to get us into exogamy. So we have children with hybrid vigor and it, it strengthens the, the gene pool of the community that those children are born into. Um, well, so I could see Starfleet saying, eh, normal evolution, no big deal. You know, and a couple of things. First of all, you're talking about this, this hybrid vigor. I think a lot of people who've had mutts, dogs mm-hmm, yeah. who are mixed breeds they're not one solid breed that's why a lot of times they they tend to be healthier they Mm -hmm. tend to be stronger in the traits of the breeds yep because of that you know some of the best dogs we've had and some of the the longest lived dogs we've had in in my experience have been these mutts that they have the different traits whereas a lot of times mixed or a strict breed you know dogs are just one breed purebreds purebreds can have you know real health issues Mm -hmm. you know you think hip dysplasia in some of the retriever dogs mm-hmm. and things like that. So also uh, all those dogs that have been bred to have short snouts like bulldogs, they have terrible oh, breathing problems. There's, there's some real, there's some real issues with that. Yeah. I, that's one thing that I'm, I'm glad to see a lot more awareness in dog breeding, by the way, with that, just go off on that little tangent. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I would say there the are certain, breedings are certain breeds I would not buy because I don't want to support the continuation of a line with animals that are going to suffer yeah. this much. You see bulldogs and pugs where there's actually movements to, bring back the snout, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to breed that back in because it is such an issue. Uh, second of all, there, there was in TNG, there was this idea that human, not just humanity, but most humanoid species had been distributed basically yeah. throughout the galaxy. And that can be a way that you can kind of explain how you can have crossbreeding yeah. between these different species because they are related to a common ancestor 4.5 billion years ago or whatever it was. Well, we're all related to that, but that doesn't mean I can, yeah. bre- that humans can breed with an octopus. Yeah. Um, well, but in this case, it was guided evolution to produce yeah. something humanoid. And you right. could yep. say because of that guiding of the evolution, it would guide them in a way that more, in, more crossbreeding yep. between species would be possible. So that, that's, that's a way that you can kind of answer yeah. that issue of, of, of having, you know, human Klingon or human Vulcan, because there is, common ancestry that was guided for that purpose it's scientific nonsense but fictionally it works yeah yeah and it's yeah does genetic engineering all over star trek it's the augmentation that really is the the problem yep. that they have which and brings up something about that in the <clears throat> which brings up something that i have as a bit of a criticism so when they announced that dr bashir was an augment they told us what his augmentations were and 
he now was not hiding them anymore. And that made him a vastly more interesting character, yeah. you know? Um, so I don't have a clear sense. I mean, they may have mentioned it, but I don't have a clear sense of what number one's augmentations are. And I'd like to know what they are. And I'd like to see her mm-hmm. not hide them anymore. I think well, apart from the glowing immunity system, yeah, <laughs> they didn't show anything. Yeah, that's the only one that they've really talked. It may be strength a little bit, but yeah, I, I wonder if it's she's always been super smart and you know a little unemotional. She was described as a walking freezer unit in the original pilot, but um, but so those would be obvious candidates for what might be her augmentations. But I think they should openly discuss them and 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 use it to drive her character. Hopefully they will. Hopefully. I mean, obviously we've still got quite a few episodes left in the season, so hopefully they will. So we also have an email from Brett who writes, I really enjoyed ad aspera per aspera. I'm an attorney, 90% criminal, 10% civil, and do a lot of litigation and trials and hearings. Usually I'm very disappointed in courtroom scenes, episodes and shows the biggest issues are that they rely on zero actual rules of evidence or courtroom procedure and often focus on a single gotcha question here the courtroom scenes actually felt natural they felt like courtroom scenes i could see unfolding with a few minor quibbles the biggest plus for me was the slow build in trying to establish the legal principle that ultimately saved number one very few times in court is there some big question the lawyer asks that completely shuts down the courtroom Usually it's a small collection of questions and answers that establishes something huge that you talk about in closing. Yeah, I, 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 I'm glad you enjoyed it as a professional in the field. Mm-hmm. I'm not a professional, but I have studied a bit of law and not formally in law school, but just through my own reading and so forth. I read books about the Supreme Court and how cases work, and I read um, in investigating you know, true crime assassinations and things like that. I read books that involve court cases. So I have an outsider's perspective on the same thing. And I agree a lot of scripted TV and movie courtroom drama is just dramatic and lame. I've also actually been in courts. You know, I was I was uh, monitoring the early Operation Rescue movement as a pro-life reporter. Uh, when those were going on. So I've been in trials and so forth as a witness, not that's the wrong word, as a uh, member of the public who's observing the trial. Mm. Um, And and um, and I I liked how this was different than that. I wouldn't say it was fully realistic, but I liked how it was different. And um, uh, so I guess that was my basic feedback on that. Yeah, I my the thought as I was uh, reading it the first time was, um, you know, the, the big gotcha is something like in the movie A Few Good Men, where, mm-hmm. you know, the the, the uh, Tom Cruise's character and Jack Nicholson's character. Tell me who did the cool red, you know, to, you know and then I can handle the truth. You can't handle, it was like, you know, that whole dramatic thing that would never happen. There would be objections and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, anyway. Uh, our last feedback comes from Kelly Brown, who writes via Facebook. I thought this was a decent episode, but it doesn't deserve the lavish praise that some online are giving it. The main problem I have with it is how she was found not guilty. Did she not disclose her genetic engineering? Yes. Her getting asylum shouldn't make any difference to that point. They could have found her guilty, but suspended the sentence or something similar based on her getting asylum. But finding her not guilty because of a, not guilty because of asylum is odd. Yeah, I agree. It's odd. It, it, it is odd. And it's a stupid form of asylum. You don't give people asylum into your military. 
Uh, you give them asylum into your country or your nation or, you know, whatever. Um, so it's a stupid thing. But if having said that, I didn't mind the court ruling as it did in this, because one of the things that you often find is with various judges, they're not going to always apply the law strictly. They have feelings, too. They know what they would like to see. And in a lot of situations um, now, judges are human, too, although admittedly not all of them are human in this case. Uh, but figuratively speaking, they're human, too. And so they have desires. They want to see a particular outcome. And what you really need to do is not prove your case, but give them a legal pretext to do what they want. And um, and so then this is what the Warren court did constantly in U.S. history, it would bend the law. If you could show the Warren court a pretext for something, even even things that flatly contradicted the language of a statute, the Warren court would bend the law in order to achieve the result it wanted. And and so essentially what we're what we have is kind of that. Yes. Um, from one perspective, uh, number one is clearly guilty of lying. But then we come along with this rationalization of the stupid she got asylum in the military thing. And it's like, can we as judges use that to achieve the outcome we want? Yeah, we can. That's good enough. She's innocent. Um, and so I just viewed it as they're giving the what the civil defense attorney in this was doing was giving the judges a pretext to do what they wanted. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, that reading of the of how you could read it. Yeah, that would be. But I did mention during the show, like like in in reality, she would have ended up, you know, not guilty. Now, here's your nice posting in some remote uh, frozen wasteland <laughs> for mm -hmm. the rest of your career. E either that or, you know, here, ha enjoy the rest of your life as a civilian with your honorable discharge. And right. Have a good life. Right. Exactly. All right. And that's all our feedback. Thank you, everyone, for your feedback. We really do enjoy getting that. So we'd like to take a moment now to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Daniel D, Kelly B, Max S, Mark R, and Rochelle K. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us this time. We would love to hear what you think of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash starquestmedia. Send an email to trek at sqpn.com or visit our Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. You can watch The Secrets of Star Trek on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash starquestmedia. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the next new episode of Strange New Worlds, Among the Lotus Eaters. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, and Jolan True. And Father Cory Stika, thank you as well. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, I still have a bunker in Vermont in case this whole no-money socialist utopia thing turns out to be a fad. Fad.